This morning's scripture passage comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. And the chain fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together, they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man. At once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Annalisha. One more quick announcement needs to be shared before we move into this story and into this text. And it's a very exciting announcement. I'm going to put somebody on the spot here. But our student director, Scott Visser, yesterday popped the question uh, to one uh, Megan. I forgot her last name. Megan 
Megan Schaefer. And so he is engaged. She said yes. So let's just celebrate with Scott right here. <laughs> big, big news. And we're so excited for you, Scott. I could see he was still full and pumped up with adrenaline when I congratulated him today. My name is uh, Eric. For those who don't uh, know me, I'm one of the pastors here. We're currently in a series on the book of Acts. We're calling it Blueprint. In a day where many people who are not Christians and many people who are Christians are asking honest questions about the church. A lot of them. Some would be, why church? Why do I need church? Can't I have a spirituality that's just me and Jesus alone? What should the church be? What should the church do? If we were to build a church from scratch, if we just said, let's start over, let's build it from scratch according to Jesus' vision for church, what would that look like today? We've been talking about and looking at how Acts answers these questions as a kind of blueprint for how Jesus built the church. Now, I've, I've lived in California. I think I've got it right for a total of 17 years of my life. And so now I consider myself a Californian. If that's okay with you native Californians, can I do that? And something that I've noticed uh, for people who come to California, who visit, who are not natives, who don't live here, when they are jealous of the fact that they don't get to live in California, they tend to say something, and you probably have heard it, and that is, uh, California is just waiting for the big one. Just waiting for the big one to happen. You guys are due. And usually I just say, no, no, we're not. We're not waiting. We're not waiting for it. I just have to say something. It's just that, that jealousy that they have. And I try to remind people, like, no, our buildings, are, the homes that we have, our roads, and our, our, um, you know, our tall structures, even the tallest skyscraper in Los Angeles, it's built to withstand earthquakes. Uh, so we'll be fine, not to make light of the potential disaster of a big earthquake. But in California, our buildings, our roads, our homes, they are prepared to withstand disaster. And so it must be for the church. And so it must be for anyone who follows Jesus or anyone who is considering Jesus. A church and a life must be built to be prepared for to withstand disaster, to withstand life's earthquakes. When things are shaken up in our lives and when our faith is shaken, that's what this story in Acts chapter 12 is all about. Before Acts, the book of Acts as a whole makes a major shift in the story from the church at Jerusalem, the original church, the church at Jerusalem in Judea and Sumeria. That's Acts 1 through 12, chapters 1 through 12. We're right here in that transition point. Before that transition is made in the story into 13 and all the way to the end in 28, where the gospel goes all out throughout the Mediterranean world and ends up in Rome, there is this one very important story that Luke wants to leave us with. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He wants to tell us this story about this church, the original church, how Jesus built it strong to endure. 
Now, when I read this story months ago, this rarely happens to me, I was reading it and I was getting really excited because I was like, I already know my sermon title. That rarely happens, but I already had it down. And you see it there in, in your notes or on the screen, and that is no rivals. No rivals, that's what this story is all about. It's what we need to see. It's what we need to believe. It's what we need to hold on to when our lives and our faith is shaken. What makes for strong faith? What makes for enduring faith? It's the firm conviction that Jesus has no rivals. What is a rival? Here's a great definition. A rival is a person or a thing competing with another for the same objective or for superiority in the same field of activity. A person or thing competing with another for the same objective or for superiority in the same field of activity. If you're a sports fan, I don't really need to explain to you what a rivalry is or what a rival is. Um, that's what makes sports fun. You have USC and UCLA. No cheers. No cheers. If I was where I grew up, I would say we have the Gators and the Bulldogs, but no, nobody cares about that here. But we have the Dodgers and the Giants, right? That's a fierce rivalry. And when it comes to deciding who's the best college football team in L.A., who's the best baseball team in California, there can be only one. That is why rivalries get very intense. That is why people hurt each other when these rivals play each other. It's dangerous to be a Giant fan at Dodger Stadium. We all know that. Rivalries get intense because if the question is, who is supreme? There can be only one answer. So in this message up front, I just wanted, I wanted to share that's, that's where we're headed. And so being up front here, this is to let you know a very challenging message. It was very challenging for me. It's a message about the supremacy of Jesus over all things. And that has all kinds of implications that challenge us. But if we are able to hear the challenge what I want to tell you is this, that it is the most comforting of messages that we could ever hear. It's the basis of Christian hope. Acts chapter 12, you just heard the story. Maybe some of you have heard this story for the very first time. It's a little bit crazy. There's a lot going on, a lot that's hard for us to understand. One of Jesus' favorite people there at the beginning you may have missed it because there was so much after. He died. He was executed. James. There's this crazy, miraculous rescue that it's like, well, what is, how, how did this even happen? And then there's this really disgusting story of a man being eaten by worms. And so you're taking all that in and going, what is that? It's a little hard to understand, but I want to walk you through this story so we can hear the challenge and we can receive that comfort. This is the outline for this morning. It's in your um, notes. If you're following along, we'll be looking at the attack of rivals. We'll be looking at the response under attack, and we will be looking at, lastly, the defeat of rivals. First, the attack of rivals, focusing in here on verses 1 through 4. So we're picking up the story in Acts from where we left off with the Jerusalem church in chapter 9. The last we heard of that church, the church in Jerusalem and Judea, was right after the um, Pharisee Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, was converted in an incredible and miraculous way. When that happened, the persecution against the early Christians from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem 
it died down for a season. That's what we're told back in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says they had peace and they were strengthened. They were living in the fear of the Lord. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit and increasing in numbers. Things were peaceful. And they were thriving in their faith. And many people were converting to Christianity. And we just finished a section in Acts where we learned some of the stories of these conversions. People from all over the world, from Ethiopia, a Roman soldier and a Samaritan. So things were good and peaceful in this first church, but this peace didn't last. That's where we pick up the story in chapter 12. About that time, so about 10 years had passed, it's probably 44 AD around there, King Herod, it says, attacked some who belonged to the church. He executed James, John's brother, with the sword. This King Herod, in other places he's known as King Herod Agrippa I, he is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king over Judea during Jesus' birth. Herod the Great, you may remember, tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, and he did kill and execute John the Baptist. So this Herod, grandson Herod, number two, was following in his father's footsteps in his violent reign. So let's just step back and ask a question. I think it's a natural question of this text. Why? Why did Herod become so violent? Why did he feel like he had to execute one of the leaders of the church? What did they do to deserve it? What did they do to provoke it? Verse 3, if you look at verse 3, tells us maybe one of the reasons. It says the people were happy about this. When James was killed, the people were pleased. And kings and politicians are always looking for ways to win the favor of the people. But still, the question is why? Why would the king and why would the people rejoice in such violence? Well, we can find the answer to that question from this story and also from the rest of the book of Acts. And that's this. These Christians in this church were living like Jesus was really king. They were living like Jesus was really king. Not Herod, not Caesar, not anyone or anything else but Jesus. Now later in Acts, when the gospel came to a city called Thessalonica, some Jewish leaders came. When the gospel came, they followed it right up, and they started a riot. They started a mob, and they said, you need to drive these Christians out. The city officials said, why? What is going on? Why is this mob happening? And they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, Jesus. In fact, they were saying more than that. They were saying there is only one king. Jesus. So these Christians were not protesting. They were not being obnoxious. They were not trying to get political power. It came down to this, simply living like Jesus, quietly, yet consistently, will always shake things up. It will upset the status quo. It will turn things upside down. And this principle here applies to all times and all places. Whenever Jesus is followed as king, rivals will always respond. Rivals will always attack. 
When Jesus is given authority, when he is given leadership in a life or in a community, rival kings, authorities, and leaders of a culture or leaders in a life will be challenged. And rivals don't go down without a fight. Um, I think we all know this, but with kings, or you could say with, with presidents, with any top dog out there, there's only one. So if you can imagine a conversation with a king, if you say, you know what, I want to be king. And I'm going to go into the throne room of the king and say, hi, I am also king here. Or you walk into the Oval Office and whoever's in office, you say to the president, I am the president too. Let's just do it together. We can both be president. We know that doesn't work. Only one king will come out of that throne room or that office. This applies also at a personal level too. The Bible's anthropology or its psychology says, inside every human heart, it's like a king of the hill, the game king of the hill, where there can only be one standing on the hill at one time. It can change. Different kings can come and go on the top of the hill, but only one at a time. Only one supreme value can reign in the human heart. Only one authority calls the shots, leads the way, and at the end of the day says, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're headed. What are the rival kings in our lives? The list could be a very long list. But let me offer a few examples. It could be the king of money. It could be the king of control. It could be the king of success, the king of achievement, the king of a certain relationship in our lives, or the king of our own comfort and our own pleasure. It could be the king of approval of what other people think of us. Whatever is most important to us, Whatever is most valuable to us, the thing that we dream about the most, the thing that we think, if this is lost, I would feel like my life is over. That's our functional king. And the Bible teaches us, and I think we all know, that there can only be one king at a time. This is the most challenging, I believe, yet the most comforting thing that Christianity offers us. Jesus is king, and there are no rivals. There will be seasons of peace in our life that God gives us for growth, and those are great seasons and very important seasons. But as this text shows us, there will be seasons of shaking in our life as well. And in these seasons of shaking, what we learn is that these seasons are for God to reveal his rivals and to show us his supremacy over them like he did for this church and also for Peter. The attack of the rivals. What was the response? The response is narrated for us there in verses 5 through 17. First, how did the church respond to this? What did the Christians do? How did they respond to being attacked, one of their leaders being killed? And the answer here is through prayer. Not just a few prayers on their own as they went about their lives. They didn't just say, thoughts and prayers be with everybody. This was fervent prayer. This was gathering in corporate prayer together earnestly. And probably all night they were praying. 
And there are two things I want to point out about this response. First, it's, it was right for them to pray because God is sovereign over everything. So it was the right thing to do. But secondly, it was also hard for them to pray because they were shaken. They were shaken. It was right for them to pray because although they were powerless over what was happening, God was powerful over it all, even their suffering. So they said, what can we do? There's nothing left for us to do. Let's pray. It was the right thing to do. We're given, did you, did you hear all these details that were given about how Peter was imprisoned? Look at the text again. It says, Herod had four squads of four soldiers guarding him. Luke said, you need to know this. These are important details. So there was four squ uh, squads, probably in rotation, guarding him. Two soldiers were right next to Peter while he slept in prison, bound with chains. And there were sentries at the door, guarding. Now, Peter had escaped previously from prison, miraculously, in chapter 5. So Herod said, not this time. And God said, yes, this time. None of that can stop me because I'm sovereign over all of it. So it was clearly right for them to pray, but it was hard for them to pray. This was fervent prayer, it says, but at the same time, it was also fragile prayer. Why do I say that? Well, what I mean is that it was a prayer with a mixture of belief and unbelief. It was fervent, the word there is arms outstretched, desperate prayer, but we know it was fragile. At the same time, how do we know that? Because when God answered the prayer, they didn't even believe that he would. They didn't even believe that he did. When Peter showed up at the doorstep, they said, no, it can't be him. It must be his angel, which is a very far-fetched explanation. They said, no, it couldn't be that God answers our prayer. It must be his ghost, his angel. Even Peter didn't believe it as it was happening. I'm comforted by this because often my prayers are like this. They're a mix of belief and desperation and unbelief where I wonder if God's listening or if he'll do anything. We can understand why their faith was shaken, can't we? James was killed. James, one of the three inner circle disciples in Jesus' earthly ministry. And they were thinking, what was Jesus doing? Where was he? Was he really king? Was he really more powerful than Herod and powerful than the forces that were now attacking them? The message of Jesus as king is hard to hold on to in suffering. And when our lives are shaken, there can be a lot of mystery. Why Peter and not James? The answer isn't given. It's hard to hold on to for those who are oppressed and under the power of earthly authorities and kings and oppressors. But when the servant girl, Rhoda, answers the door, they said, and she came back and said, I think Peter's here. God's answered our prayers. They say, you're out of your mind. You're insane. God couldn't possibly do that. Yes, he could. And yes, he did. They were amazed. The sovereign power of God and the power of faithful yet fragile prayer 
put those things together. It's unstoppable. Greater than the power of the state, greater than the power of Herod, greater than the power of anything that might shake us. That's the church's response. The church responded, but God also responded, did he not? How did God respond? Um, he was being attacked by a rival king, Herod. So he answered the prayers of the church. He sets Peter free. But it's when he did this, and it's how he did this, that I want all of us to make sure we see. I never saw this before. This was a new insight for me this week. When and how he did it, very specifically, very, very, very powerfully, did he speak to their shaken faith and to ours. What God did was he showed he is the real king and what kind of king he is. Luke, the author, makes all kinds of intentional connections here between what's happening to the early church and to the attack on Jesus, the attack that led to his crucifixion. Let me share these parallels with you. Both happened at the same time. And he made sure he told us. At the feast of the Passover, at the feast of unleavened bread, both happened at the same time. Both led to fervent prayer. The only time Luke uses these words, the only time they're used in the Bible is here and in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying fervently. Lord, is there any other way? Both were attacked by a king named Herod. The words arrest and killed and delivered all appear in both stories. Okay, that's interesting. Why? Why all these parallels and all these connections? What Luke is doing, he wants us to read this story as the story of two kings. On the one side, you have not only King Herod, but all other kings. From Pharaoh, the king who was the king at the time of the Passover. From Pharaoh to Herod, and after Herod, all other kings. And on the other side, you have a man on a cross with the inscription above his head, this is the king of the Jews. Luke is saying there are really only two kings. There's Jesus and there's all other rivals. Why was Jesus attacked? It's because he, claimed, he came to reclaim his place as king in the world and over our lives. What was his response to rebels, to all this mutiny happening? If he is the rightful king, what did he do? How did he respond? He bled in prayer for us. He bled in death for us to show us what kind of king he is. On the one hand, there are kings who kill, who do violence to humanity, who imprison and put people in bondage. On the other hand, there is a king who died for us, who absorbed our violence against him to set us free from our bondage. The king who took our place is those who deserve the penalty of treason. Every rival king will demand you to give your life for them and put you in chains. Jesus is the only king who gave his life for you and who will set you free. 
that's what Luke wants us to see. Whether it's success or pleasure or money or approval or control or other people or the religious approach to earning our way through life and proving ourselves by our performance, when any of these things become ultimate, they take life from us and put us in bondage. When our lives are shaken, or when we feel the cost of following Jesus and the challenge of following Jesus, Luke says, look to the cross. Remember who really is king. And remember what kind of king he is. That's God's response to the attack. There's one more part to this story. And that's the defeat of the rivals. There's the attack. There's the response. And in verses 18 through 24, we see the defeat of rivals. So this story not only shows us that Jesus is really king, what kind of king he is, but it also shows us here at the end what happens to all other rival kings. They will be defeated. So what happens in verse 19? Okay, Peter escaped. What did Herod do? He searched for him everywhere. He said, we got to find this guy. I'm not going to be embarrassed by this guy, Peter. He searched, but he could not find him. He interrogated the guards, and then they couldn't give him any answers, so they were executed. So here in, in verse 19, when you are a powerful king and, and your prisoner that you are planning to execute to please the people is set free, you can't find him, you are embarrassed, you are feeling defeated and angry. So what does he do? He goes off to another place. He goes to Caesarea, which was the capital of Judea at the time. And in verse 20, if you look at verse 20, it gets very political here. We're trying to figure out what's going on. Herod is described here in a way that shows he is really at the peak of his political power. These cities of Tyre and Sidon, they depended on him. They were outside of his actual jurisdiction, but they needed him and his resources in order to survive. They submitted to him. We're given this inside scoop about how they won over Herod's favor through a guy named Blastus. And this guy named Blastus, it's, it's said here that he is in charge of the king's bedroom. I was like, what is that all about? Why would somebody want to be in charge? Why would you want somebody to be in charge of your bedroom? That's like the king's personal attendant. So he's got the king's ear. He's close to the king. They find a way to get in. So there's all this political intrigue happening. It's all meant to show us that Herod, who had a wounded ego, now he's feeling a little bit better. People need me. I am powerful. They will bow down to me. And so what does he do? He comes out to appear before the people to give a speech. And this story, actually this story right here in Acts chapter 12 is told uh, by another historian. His name is Josephus, the Jewish historian. He gives us this interesting detail. As Herod uh, came out, it says that he was clad in a garment, this robe woven completely of silver, all made of silver. So the texture, he says, was indeed wondrous. It was illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun, wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. So here's the picture, right? 
You have a king, he's feeling good, he's feeling like he's in power, he's dressed in all silver and he's shining and he gives a speech. And the people shout to him, this isn't a man, this is a God. And this was the day of his defeat. Why? It says because he did not give the glory to God. God will show all rival glories for what they are. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, I will not give my glory to another. Isaiah 48.11 says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, what's happening here with the worms? Uh, that's probably a description. We're not quite sure. God um, can act in any way he chooses. But most likely this is a description and is corroborated by other historical um, accounts that this was intestinal worms, that he died on that day. He was struck down by intestinal worms. Not a pretty picture. But this, this story shows us Something very important that we need to see when it comes to God's glory and all other rival glories. I was reading this week um, a sermon. It's an incredible sermon by a man named Thomas Chalmers. He lived long ago. He wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in this sermon, his main premise is it's not enough just to, to say no to things that we shouldn't do. Uh, the, the Christian life is not a call for us just to say no as if we have an, an emptiness of affection and desire in our hearts. He says the only way that we change, the only way that we change direction in our lives is to drive out old affections with new ones. That our, our delight, the joy of our hearts would be captured and enraptured by a better glory. And so let me share an illustration I was thinking about it like this. Uh, if you ever go camping, if you're out when it's really, really dark and there's no other lights around and you have a pretty nice flashlight, you get the flashlight out and you shine it up and you can see its beam, right, reaching up. And it's pretty awesome. You're like, check out this flashlight. You can have all kinds of fun in the pitch black with a, with a good flashlight. Now, what happens the next morning if you take that flashlight out in the full light of the sun? You turn it on and shine it up, and you're like, is this thing on? Where's its glory? The might of rival gods, the might of rival glories can seem so impressive when we're looking at them. When our lives are shaken, when we feel like we're in the dark, we say, it's what I need. It's what I need to give me security and peace, and meaning, and joy. But when put up against the glory of the true king, and what kind of king he is, all that glory fades away. In the light of the glory of God, we see them for what they are. What happened to Herod here is a picture and a foretaste of what will happen to every rival to Jesus in all the world, and in every human heart. Um, 
I was talking with one of you recently about Bible translations. Uh, I'm using the Christian Standard Bible currently, uh, like a lot of different Bible translations. But as I was preaching this message, this verse kept coming into my mind, like it was buried deep in my memory. I was like, where is this verse? I can't find it. Because I thought somewhere in the Bible it said, God will suffer no rivals. I was like, that's perfect. Where does it say that? And I was searching and searching everywhere. And finally I realized it's in Nahum. Uh, a book that I, I rarely read and maybe you've never heard of, but it's in the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, but it was in this translation that I used to use as a kid called the Good News Translation. I had one Bible for like 14 years. And I've never really picked it up or used it since, but in Nahum 1, 2, the Good News Translation, which is kind of a paraphrase, it says this, the Lord tolerates no rivals. If this is true, friends, this is the ultimate challenge. All must and all will bow the knee before King Jesus. If this is true, friends, this is the ultimate comfort. The King who died for us loves us and nothing can stop him from accomplishing his good purposes in and through us. I want to share a few more lessons from this text. The attack of the rivals, the response to the attack and the defeat of the rivals. There are a few more applications I want us to consider about this that are both challenging and comforting. One is, is personal. The first is personal for each of us to consider. The personal application for each one of us is that Jesus' loving plan for us is to defeat all his rivals in our hearts. All those who come to faith in Jesus, that is his plan. That's his kingly agenda for you and your life. This week I came across a book by a man named Horatius Bonar, also written uh, many years ago. It's called Night of Weeping, Morning of Joy. It's written to people who are suffering, whose lives are shaken, whose faith is shaken. And he says, I want you to remember this. What is God doing when he's shaking my life? He says, he is jealous of our affection. He claims it all his own, and every idol he will utterly abolish for our sakes as well as for his own. He can suffer no rival in the heart. Often, friends, when our lives are shaken, when we're suffering, not always, but often, God is revealing to us the emptiness of the rivals in our hearts so he might clear them out and take his place. That's the personal lesson. I want to share what I think is an important political lesson from this text, and that is this. No political party, no country, no leader can have ultimate allegiance from us. That is a core implication for the Christian faith. Why does anybody remember King Herod? You can pick King Herod one or two. Only because they're mentioned in the Bible as rival kings of Jesus, whom were defeated. Otherwise, we'd, nobody would know who they are. They once seemed so powerful, they were unassailable, but their reign was no match for Jesus and no match for the gospel. The greatest empires 
nation states, political leaders, their power will end. That's a fact of history. History has shown us that all kingdoms, all nations have faded in their glory. But history has also shown us that the word of God has flourished and multiplied everywhere. The gospel grows. Verse 24. The more it is opposed, the more it grows, the more it seems marginalized and pushed out from the center of politics and power, the more it flourishes and multiplies. Friends, we don't need a political party or a political leader to have comfort in this life. It's not the only thing we need to know about politics, but I think it is the central tenet and everything flows from there as we navigate. What does it mean? What does it mean to engage with politics for the good of our neighbors? Last implication, personal, political, and missional. The missional implication of this story is that nothing can stop the word of God. Nothing can stop the gospel. The word of God flourished, it grew, and it multiplied. The news, the good news of King Jesus, it cannot be stopped. No matter what anyone does, no matter how powerful they seem, they cannot stop the mission of God. Sometimes when the church or we are most shaken, we actually see this most clearly. And I want to close with this, some lessons that I was learning this week from the church in China. Some of you know more about what's happening, but the, the government this year, at the end of this year, they banned uh, online sales of the Bible, the Chinese government burned crosses, demolished churches, and forced at least a half dozen places of worship to close. Uh, I was reading the story of Pastor Jin Mingri. He was pastor of Zion Church in Beijing for 30 years. He saw his church demolished just a few months ago. And here's what he said. Of course, we are scared. We're in China but we have Jesus. Another elder from another church called Early Rain in Chengdu, his name is Li Yingguang. He was the last of the elders of this church to be arrested. His letter is posted on the China Partnership website, a ministry I'm familiar with. And he wrote a letter to his congregation. He was the last elder left. And he wrote them a letter to prepare them and what he said was this at the end of the letter. Let us remember and hold fast to our vision. Christ is Lord. Grace is King. Bear the cross. Keep the faith. Friends, receive the challenge. Receive the comfort. Christ is Lord. Grace is King. Bear the cross. Keep the faith. Your king is faithful. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the king, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. That is your name. That is who you are. You are the firstborn from the dead. You are the one who loved us gave his life for us. Our lives are often determined 
our hearts are often captured with glories of other kings, of other things that we think we need for security and life and meaning. And our lives are often shaken. And we wonder, can we count on you? Are you powerful enough to meet us where we need you the most? I pray this morning you would encourage our hearts. We may need a challenge. I pray we receive it. And I think we all need comfort. We all need comfort and the reminder and a fresh vision of your glory. And so I pray you would take your word, drive it into our hearts, encourage us and help us believe in boldness that you are king. We pray it in your powerful name. Amen.